You know, Pete, it wasn't really until I became a mom that I got the notion having a physician is a lifelong journey. I mean, I had a pediatrician when I was a kid, and then, eh, really nothing, unless I needed something like a physical or, you know, gynecologist exam. Then my kids came along, and let me tell you, they haven't gone without a doctor since the day they were born. And they're in their 20s, and they're healthy. So it really makes me wonder, do we really need a doctor past the age of hitting all those milestones and getting all those vaccines? What is the argument for a primary care doctor when you're young and healthy? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, the question is, are there consequences to not going to the doctor in your 20s? Or what about your 30s or 40s or 50s, right? What's the value in that annual physical or checkup for younger people and an annual wellness visit for older people? Hi, everyone. I'm Pete Kenworthy. And I'm Macy Jepson, and this is The Science of Health. Today, we're talking about the value of taking one hour out of your year to be proactive with your health instead of reactive. Essentially, today's discussion is about whether having a primary care doctor can actually keep you healthy. That means preventing illness and disease instead of reacting to it. Joining us today is Dr. Susan Rattay, a family medicine doctor with expertise in community health and preventative medicine. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. So let's start with this. Lots of people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s have gone for many, many years without getting sick, beyond things like the flu we're talking about. And they know that they should see a doctor every year to get like a blood test baseline on things like cholesterol or sugar, have their blood pressure checked, or keep an eye on their weight. But they don't. This is lots of people. How do you convince people about the value of preventive care? Is it that some of them aren't as healthy as they may think? Is it a family history? What is it in those discussions with these people? Yeah, so most definitely. So um, it's not uncommon for me to have a younger patient, and by younger I mean someone under 50, um, to come in and say, hey, I haven't been to see a doctor for five years, 10 years. Um, and then they always feel like they need to justify why they're there. So my mo- my wife made me come. Um, you know, I've had this lingering fill-in-the-blank cough, um, you know, ankle pain, knee pain, hip pain, um, headaches. And so that's kind of a good starting point. But typically when they come in, that's a good um, captive audience now to talk about preventative, right? So uh, kind of going from head to toe and and a lot of times we pick up or we find things that, you know, they've been dealing with and it just becomes second nature to them. That's their normal life routine and didn't even think twice that there might be something we could do about it, right? That we could we could basically resolve it or cure um, what's bothering them. Um, and not to mention, you know, in your 20s, you need to start thinking a little bit about catching chronic illness and disease early, which could greatly alter the the course, the duration, and the treatment of those um, for the next 20, 30, 40 years to come. Um, For example, blood pressure, right? So your blood pressure may look relatively good, but if you look back when you're 20, it might have been five or even 10 points lower. So we're looking at trends as well. So, you know, talking about, okay, well, is, you know, does high blood pressure one in your family? Um, what does your diet look like? Do you consume a lot of salt? Are you finding time to exercise? What is your stress stress level? You know, all these other kind of um, lifestyle behaviors that can greatly affect or contribute to some of these chronic um, diseases and, and ailments. So, you know, we, it's a good platform to kind of talk about those things. And even if you're coming in just for your physical, we kind of still go through some of those same questions. Um, you know, every visit 
starts with vital signs. Um, and they're vital for a reason, right? They kind of give us a, a little snapshot of how you are um, right this moment as far as your blood pressure, your pulse. Um, sometimes patients' pulses are very high. So you kind of kind of, kind of dig into that. Maybe are you really nervous? Do you have some underlying anxiety? What, brings, what makes you anxious about coming to the doctor? You can find barriers too why patients may not have been to the doctor. Maybe they've had a bad experience. Um, maybe they've come to doctors with complaints and were written off as something not important or wasn't given a good thorough workup. And so they felt like, yeah, well, they didn't do anything for me last time. Why are they gonna do something for me today? Um, or as my patients tend to get a little older, you start take caring for your parents, right? And you start seeing how your parents um, maneuver the healthcare system, which can be quite frustrating, um, as we are well, well aware. And so, you know, kind of going through that and, and, and kind of feeling through maybe what are some of the barriers or why they haven't been there may also be part of how you um, improve how they care for themselves and how often they get kind of preventative screening and tests. And, and one thing I, I heard you saying there is, the value of the annual visit isn't even necessarily what's happening at that particular visit, but it's being able to look back on the year before, two years before, five years before, 10 years before, Correct. Yeah. when you're talking about things like blood, blood pressure that may not be that bad, or this little tiny tweak in my knee, or this little cough that is really nothing because I can handle it. But if we compare that to other years where we continue to see you, we can see some things that we wouldn't have seen if we had seen you for the first time 10 years later. Exactly. Um, and to go with that, too, is weight, right? So, you know, typically obesity is a very slow, progressive mm -hmm. disease because it's now considered a chronic disease. Um, and so by looking at um, the velocity in which people gain weight or if they're able to maintain weight, kind of says a lot, too, about what are they doing outside of that doctor's office. You know, are you maintaining some sort of physical activity? Have you had a job shift? Um, how did COVID affect you? I know we have to bring up COVID, right? Any time we talk about me uh, medicine these days. Um, but looking at the trends, so there are, are, there are medical reasons to explain sometimes weight gain or fatigue or dizziness or, you know, fill in the blank. Um, and so those are good opportunities for us to do even your screening preventative blood work can screen for some of those things. And then, you know, pa patients also, this is a big thing as a barrier for coming to see the doctor. They don't want to be weighed. How many women don't want to go to the doctor because they don't want to know what their weight is? Hmm. Or they don't want to know what their blood pressure is because they're living in this little bit of a world of denial. And, you know, they actually come in anticipating something to be abnormal. And so that is also a barrier to talk about um, that sometimes people don't think about. And if it's that big of a deal, most people, most providers will say, hey, you know, if you don't, you're very uncomfortable getting your way today, that's okay. I still want you to go talk to the doctor. And, um, you know, if she or he feels like it's necessary to wait because of X, Y, Z, what we're trying to treat you for, then, then we'll reassess that at the end of your visit. So I think that's it's an interesting concept, but I know a lot of women may be listening right now or can relate. Like that's a source of anxiety with going to the doctors, especially if they know that, you know, over COVID they've gained weight or they haven't been as active. And I, I will want to say another thing, too. We use, we use those vital signs Again, not only for weight gain, but weight loss. So I sometimes get really concerned if a patient of mine has lost a significant amount of weight over a period of time. Because there may something 
maybe something else drastically going on in their lifestyle, especially if they're doing it unintentional, right? This is not an intentional weight loss. Um, And if they're doing it intentionally, that's a great opportunity to kind of uh, reward them by saying, hey, you're going to get your blood work done, and I bet you it's going to look so much better, you know? So we we use some of just those vital signs also as a reward, like I said, sometimes when you're doing like a weight loss program, you know, getting we- weekly weigh-ins is an opportunity to, to reward good behavior over the week or two to say, hey, you look, you're doing really good. This is a good objective finding for how well you're kind of doing those things. Whereas if it's a little bit higher or a little bit, it's nice because if you go every year, we can say, hey, wait a minute, let's take a break. Let's take a look. What have we done differently? What can we kind of maybe make some changes so that it's not worse the next time? You know, that we can kind of put a, put the brakes on a little bit, do a little assessment and see if there's anything we can do intervention wise that's not, you know, crazy. So you've touched on three things that we can expect when we come in to see you. And that is vitals. Um, we can expect some blood work, um, weigh, and then a good long conversation about what's happening in our lives. So what do you tell a 20 or a 30 year old who is feeling all invincible thinking, I don't need that? So we go through our normal assessment, right? So um, now with a lot of the preventative medicine, or sometimes we call it your physical exam, your wellness exam, your preventative health exam. So we're giving it a lot of different names, all kind of for the same thing. Um, And physicians now are using a lot of templated, you know, notes or documentation of that visit. And so you can expect either the medical assistant or the nurse or even the physician to go through, you know, um, a screen for your mood. So have you been feeling depressed, anxious? So that's a nice opportunity for some of these younger patients who may be quite stressed. I know a lot of 20-year-olds are, are struggling with some anxiety and depression. The 20s is a, and 30s is a very you know, influential time of your life where a lot of things are happening, right? You may be finishing your education. You may be starting a new career. You may be settling down with a partner. You may be even thinking about starting a family. So there's a lot of things going on in those age where, you know, your mood may be affected. Um, We ask about um, sexual health, right? Um, Have you been up to date on any of your cervical cancer screenings? Um, Is there any reason or concern for sexually transmitted infections that we should screen you for? And those can be actually considered preventative um, in a younger population that is considered higher risk, not because of promiscuity, but because you're dating. You know, you may have multiple partners over the course of a year or two, and that's a good time to kind of just make sure everything's looking good and that there's nothing that's going to prohibit your health moving forward or um, affecting further relationships in the future. So that's um, kind of uh, something we definitely go through with younger patients. We uh, also touch upon family health. Um, So your parents, usually it's first-degree relatives, and some people don't understand what that means. So first-degree relative is anyone that is basically your parents or your siblings. So if your parents suffer from any chronic disease, um, like thyroid, blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes, um, or they've had any unforeseen or unfortunate events like strokes, heart attacks, um, diagnoses of cancers, 
Um, those are all things to let your primary care doctor know so that we can be a little more aggressive or screen you a little more frequently or even start screening you earlier depending on what age your parent was when they were diagnosed. So, you know, that is something, too, to kind of get you thinking about that. And I have a lot of patients who have no idea what some of their their parents' or siblings' health is. They have no idea. So again, it's kind of opening the, the discussion and saying, hey, I highly encourage you, you know, over this next year when you're, you're home for the holidays or you're sitting down with mom or dad or like ask them, you know, ask them what are some of your health, what are some of the things you take medications for? Um, what are some things that, you know, you've had or you've had to have done that would maybe affect or improve my ability to detect early. And so that's one another thing. We talk a lot about alcohol and nicotine use. So that's a really, really big thing to start talking about in early ages because we know the longer that you smoke, the more detrimental it is to your cardiovascular health and increases your risk for some particular types of cancers, um, lung and bladder being the one of the two more common ones associated with smoking, um, and alcohol use. You know, what does your relationship with alcohol look like? You know, is this something where, you know, you feel like it's inhibiting your ability to do as well as you could at work? Or is it affecting any of your relationships at home or with friends or with family members? And just kind of, you know, again, taking a moment to assess that, provide resources. Um, we do have resources for these, although people sometimes don't know that. We have medications we can help with smoking cessation. Some insurances do actually cover nicotine replacement therapy, which is the patches in the gum. And um, you can definitely discuss with that with your physician or come back at a later date and discuss literally just that. You know, there is reason to just meet with your doctor about smoking and what that looks like. All right. How about this? Are there patients who you see, you talked about these patients who, who come in and say, oh, I haven't been to the doctor in, in five or 10 years. So you see patients for the first time sometimes in their 40s, right? And mm -hmm. you think to yourself, wow, if I had seen this person in their 20s, we could have prevented X, Y, or Z. What? What are those things, right? Because that means there's consequences to not going to the doctor. But you, again, you're back in those invincible days that Macy talked about, right? You're in your 20s, your 30s, you feel fine. But little things are going on that if you had been going every year, we could have prevented them seeing for the first time in our 40s. Yes, correct. So um, one of the biggest ones I see in this particular age range is cholesterol. Cholesterol is one of those big ones. It kind of sneaks up on you. It's very highly linked to family history, very highly linked to diet, very highly linked to lifestyle. And so that's usually when I start to really start seeing some numbers shift um, in that screening or preventative blood work. And it, it kind of gives us an opportunity for discussion to say, hey, look, um, if you're a male, you're already at higher risk. You know, when you approach into the 50s time frame, again, let's touch upon your family history. Let's take a look at what kind of diet you're on and the lifestyle you're on. And do you really want to start a medication for this? Like, because if, if it continues to go up, we might have to do that to reduce your chance of some of these um, 
you know, these events occurring in your life, you know. And so that's a good opportunity. I see that a lot. Um, Other patients in their 40s, unfortunately, that's usually when a woman has kind of presented herself with thyroid disease. Um, And that is typically screened with a test called a TSH, which is a thyroid-stimulating hormone. Um, And that tends to start creeping up. And that gives us kind of an indication that, you know, maybe there is some need for supplemental thyroid, um, look for other reasons and maybe why the thyroid may be stressed or strained. Um, it's also a good time. I've been seeing a ton um, of sleep apnea, right? So sleep apnea starts to creep up on patients in their 40s and 50s. And usually it's a precursor to cardiovascular um, stress and strain um, later on in 50s and 60s and even 70s. And if I would have said, oh, dang, if we would have treated your sleep apnea 20 years ago, it may not have put enough strain on your heart for 20 years that you have um, AFib now or you have heart failure now or you have um, you know, extra high blood pressure. So, or you may have actually felt rested for the last 20 years of your life and not felt like you were dragging. So, you know, these are some things where we can sometimes assess the likelihood of patients having sleep apnea, for instance, by just looking at the circumference of your neck and looking in your throat. Because some patients, anatomically speaking, are very narrow in their airway. So it doesn't take a whole lot for that airway to block off when you're sleeping very soundly. Um, And again, um, you can just ask simple questions. We have a ton, a ton, a ton of like questionnaires we use in medicine to kind of give us a little bit of um, a little more probability of a test being positive. So for sleep apnea, you may ask questions like, do you feel rested when you wake up? Do you ever wake up in the morning with, you know, headaches or uh, multiple times to get up to urinate? Some of these can actually be signs or symptoms of underlying sleep apnea. So again, you know, we like to find some of these underlying causes, like again, so if, if your thyroid is low, that also tends to increase your weight, may make you feel tired. Um which then you're less likely to exercise. So it's one of those things where, again, if we're doing these routine blood work, we can detect all of these. Um, And then depending on who your provider is and how your discussion goes, they may even do a little further testing based off of symptoms you may be having. And for example, I test almost all of my patients for low vitamin D because I always say one of the risk factors of having low vitamin D is living in Northeast Ohio. And about 80% of my patients, if not more, because the ones who are probably not the the 20% were already taking some form of vitamin D, either in a multivitamins or doing it on their own um, accord. Um, but the, the average range of vitamin D is 30 to like 100. And so people are squeaking in at like 32. Well, that's not good enough for me. You know, I want you to be in 60 range, especially as we move into those postmenopausal ages where now we're worried about osteoporosis. So again, making sure that, you know, your calcium intake is good. You have good adequate vitamin D to maintain that bone health for the next 20, 30 years down the road. Um, So then you're at less risk for developing, you know, osteoporosis. So another thing to remember in your 40s is that at the age of 40 is when we 
add a blood test to all men's preventative screening, um, PSA levels. Um, and PSA stands for uh, prostate-specific antigen. And I will say not all physicians order this, so there may be one you may need to request. Um, but it's a good time to get a screen, like a, um, a baseline level of this in your blood because um, what it helps us detect is cancer in the prostate. So as a man's prostate ages, that level tends to go up. But again, what we like to watch is the velocity. How fast is that number going up to make us um, be a little suspicious that there's some um, accelerated growth in the form of a cancer? So that is a nice um, blood test that is a screening test that is included in your regular routine blood work. And then at age 40 is when we recommend all women start annual breast screening through a mammogram. Um, and this is something that, you know, the recommendations have kind of changed throughout the years, but now uh, insurance is covering it on a yearly basis. And again, it's good to get that baseline mammogram. And you want to continue to go to the same um, system because the radiologist can compare from year to year to make sure there's no changes in the tissue of the breast. Um, so this is, you know, these are things that, again, are good to start right when they're able to be screened for an initial baseline. And then you subsequently recheck those on a yearly basis to monitor for change. And it, it goes without saying, the earlier you catch cancer, the better chance. Oh, most definitely. Cancer, right? Most definitely. Yeah. I'm curious to know about women's health and whether or not they need both a gynecologist and a primary care physician. Uh, so that's an excellent question. So sometimes I get um, female patients come to me and they say, look, I've never been to uh, a primary care doctor since I was younger, but, you know, I've had two or three kids and I've been seeing my GYN and, you know, they're ordering, you know, my mammogram for me. They're doing my pap when I need to. They'll, you know, order some blood work for me. Um, and that's awesome. That's great because I want you getting those preventative services um, however you're getting them. And if you have a really good relationship with that person, by all means, keep going and seeing them. They are the expert of that area of your body. Um, however, you know, they are not going to talk to you about all of the other things we had previously mentioned. Um, they may, but they may not. Um, and also, as a primary care doctor, if a woman is low risk or, and not having any problems as far as you know, vaginal bleeding or discharge or abnormal paps in the past or abnormal mammograms, um, a primary care doctor is fully equipped and trained to do those screening pap tests and pelvic exams and ordering the mammograms and resulting those mammograms. And so you would want to, if you were on the market for a, like you said, one-stop shop, primary care doctor, you may want to just make sure that that particular provider um, does, you know, women's health uh, pap exams, because not all all of them choose to do that, um, but I would say most of them do, um, and all of them have been trained in it. Uh, and and the other part is is that if your primary care doctor does testing and it comes back abnormal, it would not be uncommon for them to say, hey, you know what, maybe you should establish with a GYN. Maybe you should make sure that. They're not seeing things that I don't see, and they have, they're equipped to do other tests, you know, like biopsies or other kind of procedures that may be indicated for your condition that was detected on your screening. Okay, listen to this stat. According to the CDC, if everyone received the recommended 
preventive care, more than 100,000 lives could be saved each year. 100,000 people saved each year. What are those things? Like, What are the things we're talking about that the CDC puts that stat out there? I think most of it is your cancer screenings. 100%. Like you said, you hit the nail on the head. Early detection makes the world a difference. If you have a small lesion in the breast, for instance, there's a chance you could resect or remove, it's called like a lumpectomy, Mm -hmm. that entire abnormal tissue and then be on more frequent surveillance to detect any subsequent recurrences or anything like that. And, And also... Sometimes when you get one cancer, it can help us guide you for any other subsequent cancers that may be associated with that. So we can do additional testing. We can do, I'm sure everyone has heard of like the BRCA testing, so mm-hmm. that genetic link to, to cancers. Um, so that's one just example. Again, sometimes my patients get these routine blood work and say their um, kidney function is off or their liver function is off. We didn't talk about that, right? Those can be indications of some underlying autoimmune diseases. Um, Maybe there was some sort of injury or trauma to those organs. Think of infections. So again, we're kind of doing a general screen to make sure some of those very important organs um, are staying healthy. Um, And then we also can utilize those levels. So say you have a little reduced kidney function. It may change what medications we can use to help prevent further um, injury to that organ. Um, It may affect doses of different medications that are metabolized in those organs. So again, it gives us a little bit better. It gives us a more, what do we say, individualized care. So that we know when we're treating you, we're treating you the best of our ability because we have more information. Let's talk about diabetes for a minute. I I read that in the United States, about 30% of people who have diabetes don't even know they have it. And almost half of those being treated aren't even controlling their disease. What's the risk there? Oh, my. So I do a lot of diabetes management, and actually, I love diabetes. I think it's very interesting. There's a lot of new medications out there. They're kind of pushing the envelope for kind of understanding um, the association with um, neurochemicals and uh, other hormones in the bodies that may be contributing to diabetes. Um, But if you have diabetes and it goes untreated, Typically, that means you have very high or elevated sugars in your blood. And things that do not like high sugar are little tiny blood vessels and little tiny nerves in the body. So if you look at the structures that get affected, uh, the brain, the eyes, the kidneys, the fingers and the toes mostly, are the the areas that get affected because those are are the most susceptible to injury from these high levels of sugar. And over time... You know, some of that injury can't be reversed. So, you know, diabetes in the United States is the leading cause for, let's say, blindness, leading cause for um, needing to be on hemodialysis for kidney failure. Um, One of the leading causes or contributors, I should say, to heart attacks and strokes. Um, So, and let's talk a little about peripheral vascular disease, right? People can't feel if they're on the verge of having a stroke. They can't feel if their kidney function is declining. But, but uh, peripheral vascular disease from diabetes is very uncomfortable. 
It's painful, pins and needles, you know. And then when the nerves get severely damaged, you can't feel your feet at all. And now you're at risk for having ulcers and injuries and wounds that won't heal very well. So again, if we can keep those blood sugar levels suppressed or down or functioning, your body functioning on a more level to be able to control those sugar levels, I get 20, 10, 20, 30 years down the road, you can affect the outcome of all those other conditions that we just described, which costs a, a lot of money to, to, to treat, but also affects the quality of someone's life tremendously. I, I mean, I continue to hear in your answer to everything, little things can become big things. Of course, yeah. I mean, that's kind of the constant message throughout this. This conversation about diabetes makes me think about COVID and a couple of years of people not going in and being checked out. And I do wonder if you have seen the consequences of that and what what that looks like. Yeah. So the first and foremost is when patients, say, have a condition, let's say uh, diabetes or high blood pressure or high cholesterol, and you're not getting those routine checks Um, either in the form of like an A1C, which is a three-month blood sugar check, or checks on their cholesterol levels, um, checks on their blood pressure, if they may not have a a way to check their blood pressure at home. Um, Those can tend to um, be a detriment to patients being motivated to continue working on that, right? So out of sight, out of mind kind of thing. Um, Sometimes patients say, oh, I haven't been there for a year. Uh, She's not going to fill my medicines, so I start now cutting back on the number of times I'm using my meds or the amount. I'm cutting things in half, right? Um, and so, you know, by not seeing a provider, we can't adequately or progressively increase medicines, decrease medicines, switch medicines based off of cost, um, and also give you, like, be your little cheerleading squad and say, hey, you're doing great, you know, or hey, maybe we should tweak this a little bit. Let's get back on track because I know a lot of us had some trouble problems like getting to the gym during COVID and eating healthy food, going to the grocery store, or we had a lot of extra stress, or maybe we were drinking a little more alcohol than we normally would. And all those can affect, you know, sugar, blood pressure, cholesterol, all those things we just described, right? Um, And so I think now that we're kind of um, starting to get back into our doctors on a more regular basis for those of my patients who, who have been doing that, we're kind of getting back on track. Um, and then also, you know, it's a good opportunity for me to say, hey, like, um, you know, let's get back to the gym. You were doing so good before COVID and we're going to get, kind of get things moving again, get things grooving again so that we don't have to next visit, increase your medicine or Mm. add another medicine. Sure. So how are things changing as we get even older and we move, and you talked about the different name for the, the physical or annual checkup or whatever, right? But then- as you're older, it becomes that annual wellness visit or the Medicare annual wellness visit, right? What's what what's covered there, and why why is that important? I mean, I think I think most people realize the older you get, the more important it is to kind of be with a doctor, right? Because things start happening more as you get older, right? And we talked about how some of that could be prevented. But what what is the the Medicare annual wellness visit? So yeah, so a lot of people get confused by this, and. Um You know, when you turn 65, you could be eligible for Medicare. And so it's called like a welcome to Medicare visit. And the questions, like we said before, you know, there's a templated documentation of your visit. And when you're younger, 
you know, we may be more inclined to ask about family history because that could be impactful on how we kind of treat you for the next 20, 30 years. When you're 65, usually most 65-year-olds, if they had a strong family history, they've kind of presented themselves by now. You know, if your father had elevated prostate, you probably have some elevated prostate by the time you're 65, at least kind of we're hinting at it, or you have some sort of presentation if you were at higher risk for developing those. But when someone gets to be 65, they, they tend to be on a little more medications. So we take a little extra time to review those medications and make sure there's no interactions, make sure that those aren't contributing to any um, further risk for dizziness or falls or confusion or things along those lines. And then those screening questions change, and they're geared more towards, you know, have you fallen in the last six months? And maybe why did you fall? Is it a stability thing? Is it a pain thing? Is it a medication thing? Um, is it a heart thing? So, you know, the, the reasons are kind of limitless, but in the same regard, we want to detect patients who are at increased risk for falls because we know the consequence could be fatal in some instances. Um, We ask a lot about um, kind of cognition. You know, how's your memory? You know, um, maybe a family member's in there and they can kind of justify, yeah, memory's good. Like, I'm not forgetting to turn off the stove or I'm not forgetting where I'm driving. Um, Maybe screen for family history of dementia and see if that might be a higher risk for that population of patients. Um, We ask about ADLs, which is uh, activities of daily living. Like, are you still doing your own banking? Are you still doing your own cleaning? Are you still doing your own cooking? Um, What does that look like? So this is kind of the time where um, people tend to progress with arthritis, right? What does that look like? Can you stand long enough? to cook and clean and how are your hands opening jars and just kind of other ADLs, like the the daily things you do um, that you don't normally think twice about when you're, you know, in your 30s, 40s, 50s, you know, into your 60s. Um, And then we ask things like, do you have a healthcare power attorney? Do you have a living will? You know, what would you want to do in the event your heart or your lungs stopped? You know, have you had that conversation with your family and friends? Um, And so that's kind of how the questions are a little bit different. Um, So it's a little bit less preventative and a little bit more pro, I would say, proactive. Um, And so that there's not kind of this culminating event that leads patients to be hospitalized. And clearly those conversations at 65 are much more effective when you have a relationship with that doctor that spans the years. So that's the takeaway that I get from this is the relationship, the trends, the um, feeling like you can open up and, and you have a partner in your health care. Is there anything else that, that you want to share about? Um, are we missing anything? I think they made a really good point. So some of my patients come in and they're very hesitant to do some of these screening tests. Let's say colonoscopy, right? No one's excited to do a colonoscopy. Um, and usually, and sometimes I see a patient one, two, maybe three times, kind of feel out what I call their philosophy of health. You know, are they a, a person that like wants to take a medicine and, and cure something um, with, the, with just taking a pill every day? Is it someone who wants to avoid pills and they'd rather do lifestyle stuff? Is it someone who's willing to do a combination of both? Um, what's their motivator for health? You know, is it to get on the floor and play with their grandkids or is it to lose weight or whatever that may be. So I think if you have a relationship with a a primary care doctor um, and you start to feel comfortable with them, um, you're more likely, I'm more likely to convince my patients that these sorts of tests are important. 
because they trust me, you know? They, there's some sort of trust in there. Um, and so I think it kind of goes both ways. So I have to trust you that you're going to kind of take this, what I'm ta- we're talking about, take it home and actually apply it versus you have to trust me that I'm only going to do what I think is best for your health and that, you know, if anything comes up, we're going we're gonna to treat it or approach it together. That was awesome. Thanks so much for your time. Dr. Susan Rattay, a family medicine doctor with expertise in community health and preventive medicine. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Remember, you can find and subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Search University Hospitals or The Science of Health, depending on where you subscribe. And for more health news, advice from medical experts, and The Science of Health podcast, you can go to uhhospitals.org slash blog. 